Hello and welcome to this Lunar New Year edition of Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, I'll be chatting to Radio 3 Steve James about his five best songs to mark the year of the rooster. But first, a woman pioneer made in Hong Kong. Florence Lee Tim Oi was the first woman to be ordained into the priesthood of the Anglican Church worldwide. Born in 1907, she was ordained by Hong Kong's Anglican Bishop on January the 25th, 1944, only to be told after the Second World War that she could not remain a minister. Florence Lee would go on to suffer severe hardship over decades on the mainland. Author Mark O'Neill joins me to tell me about Reverend Lee, whose first priority was always her parishioners. She was the first lady minister of the Anglican Church in the entire world, and that was in 1944. Now, we'll go to the ordination in a little while, if we go back to where she starts out in Hong Kong. So Florence Lee, did she attend a Christian school here in Hong Kong? Well, she was born in 1907. Uh, There were seven children in the family. Her family was a devout Christian family. Her father was a doctor and then became a school teacher. So she attended school at at the place where he taught. But when she was 14, she left because there was only enough money for the boys. So the boys were educated first. So only when she was uh, 21 was she able to go back to secondary school and complete her education there. And during school, she had religious experience and decided she wanted to join the church. What kind of a religious experience? She believed that uh, God was calling to her and she must devote herself to his service. So... She was inspired by Florence Nightingale, the nurse. I think Florence Nightingale was the same. She was also a very religious person, but in those days it was impossible for a woman to be a minister, so Florence Nightingale became a nurse instead. So in 1934, uh, Florence went to a theological college in Guangzhou, and she studied there for four years. Now, remember, she can't become a minister because she's a woman, so she becomes a lay worker, That's the highest level she can have. But it's a professional job in the church. And she was ordained as a deacon in 1941 in St. John's Cathedral in Hong Kong. So what is a deacon? Well, as I understand, it's someone who does very much similar work to that of a minister, but doesn't have the title or the status of a minister. In the Anglican Church, why couldn't a woman be ordained? Well, as I understand, it's a question of theology. Um, There are different views about what is appropriate. And many Anglicans believe, even until now, that ministers must be men. Nowadays, many Anglican churches in the world um, do appoint women ministers, but it's been a very long and a very complicated and a controversial matter. Going back to the Reverend Dr. Florence Lee Tim Oy. So did she name herself Florence in association with Florence Nightingale then? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. She was inspired by her uh, because of her work as a nurse and, uh, you know, serving people. So that's why she took on the name Florence for herself. So she grows up here in Hong Kong. She's born in 1907. Uh, so as you say, the boys were the first to go to school, but she would later have an opportunity at education. What were the kind of subjects that she enjoyed? Um, Well, no, I think, first of all, we should say that at that time, many Chinese women were not able to have education. 
So she was very blessed in having her father, who's a school teacher. She was able to go to primary school, and then with the delay, she was able to go to secondary school. So she had the full education, and then she had four years at a theological, theological college. So among the women of China at that time, she belonged to a very small group who had the whole primary, secondary education, and then also a tertiary education. Where was the theological college? In Guangzhou. It was a college to train men and women in serving the church. So it would be both religion, uh, theology, the Bible, but also the work of the minister and what you do and how do you look after people and what your obligations are. And what did she do after college? Well, this is where we come to the critical time. The war had started in China. We're 1940, so already the Sino-Japanese War is going on for three years. Japan has conquered large areas of China. Hong Kong is still free. And in 1940, her bishop, Ronald Hall, sends her to Macau because Macau has become a refugee centre because thousands of Chinese are fleeing the war and they are flooding into Macau, and the human needs there are very great. So she moves to Macau. The centre of her operations in Macau is the Morrison Chapel, which is the Anglican Church of Macau, which was built in the memory of Robert Morrison, the first Protestant missionary in China. And there she conducted uh, services in English and Chinese. She worked at a girls' school and she started to help some of the many refugees that had flooded into Macau. And after Hong Kong falls in December 1941, the situation in Macau becomes even more critical and the population reaches 450,000 which was triple what it was before the war. So what's happening to all of these people who are coming in? I mean, she then is sort of fundamental in trying to provide them with shelter, daily food? Well, uh, it's, this is a job far beyond the ability of one person. Uh, uh, thousands of these people have nowhere to live, so they live on the street, they live in parks, they live in abandoned buildings. Of course, in the winter time, it's very cold weather. And she describes uh, in the mornings walking to the church and there are horse carts, and the men who are riding the horse carts, they stop and they pick up all the dead bodies and they put them in the back of the carts and they pile them one on top of the other like sardines. And this was a daily occurrence. So that was the kind of life in Macau at that time. And the Anglican Church, well, and the, all the other churches were very much handicapped because transport was not possible between Macau and Hong Kong or between Macau and the rest of China. So... It was left to the people like Florence, the professional clergy who were in Macau, to attend to this enormous number of people. So she did uh, the best she could to provide food and lodging for, the, for these refugees, to nurse them and to try and ensure a reasonable burial for those who had died. And it was her work in Macau that greatly impressed her bishop, Ronald Hall. Now, he was not in Macau. He was in Chongqing. He was in the capital of, of nationalist China. He'd escaped. So he had decided on his own volition that she should be made a minister. Now, at that time, he could not contact his superiors. Uh, you know, the, 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 it was wartime. So it was a decision he made by himself. 
And he said it was because God had told him to do this because of her outstanding work in Macau. But to ordain her, it has to be done by the bishop physically on the person. It couldn't be done by letter or a telegram. So they had to find a place in between Songqing and Macau where this event could happen. Do you know at all, is there anything written down about what her reaction was to being told that he wanted to do this? I'm afraid I've not read anything written, but I think we can correctly assume she would have been very delighted and honoured by this. As I say, it's the first in the whole world for the Anglican Church. They find a place called Zhaoqing, which is in the south of Guangdong, which is more or less halfway between the two, I mean, nearer to Macau than Chongqing. And she has to make her way from Macau to this place, and most of it is occupied by the Japanese, so it's quite a dangerous and a difficult journey. She has to go from one Christian family to another, and they advise her where to stay in the next village. She goes by bicycle, by boat, by sedan chair. So finally she arrives in the house of the Anglican priest in this city and Bishop Hall is there and as you can imagine it's an extremely um, emotional meeting so they speak and they pray together for several days and then on January the 25th 1944 he performs the ordination and there's a hundred people in the church there for this historic moment and they have a lunch to celebrate and then she comes back to Macau to carry on the work she was doing before. That's quite incredible in terms of the Anglican Church, but what was the reaction elsewhere? Well, so this is 1944 January. So in 1945, in August, the war ends, and the reaction amongst the ministers in the UK, the centre of the Anglican Church, is hostile. They don't think a woman is qualified. So she is told that she must either give up her position or Bishop Hall has to resign because he had made what was in their eyes an improper ordination. So Florence doesn't blink. She says, OK, I will give up the ministership, but I'll carry on doing the work I did before. So this, I think, is really extraordinary act by her. She wanted to help her bishop. She didn't want to embarrass him. She didn't want him to be forced to give up his position. So she gave up her own position. Yes, it was a, quite a Christian act in a way. Yes, perhaps we can say that f from her aspect, the most important thing is what she's doing. It's her service to her parishioners. That's the most important. It's not the title or the clothing you're wearing when you're doing it. And what was Bishop Hall's reaction? I would imagine it was one of uh, anger, because it would question his authority to do this, and it would also question her work in Macau, because he would say that he was carrying out God's work in performing the ordination. So it wasn't his personal wish, selfish wish, he was just carrying out a divine order. So, But sorry, that's my supp supposition. I've not read his, his exact words. After this, she was sent to a parish in Guangxi in southwest China, and uh, we're now after the war, so conditions there are extremely difficult. We now have the civil war between the communists mm. and the nationalists. So she's in a very rural area? In a rural area. I mean, the, the war there wasn't particularly fierce, but, you know, China has just had this eight-year war. You know, conditions of life are extremely difficult, so there's a great deal of work for someone like her to do to attend to her parishioners. Anyway, 
the communists arrive and take over the mainland. Now, as a Hong Konger, of course, she can return to Hong Kong at any time. I mean, she wouldn't be a refugee. She'd just be returning to where she came from. But she doesn't come. She stays with her parishioners. So that's quite uh, courageous. So this is after 1949, and the mainland China has now become communist, and so she just stays with her community there. Well, of course, this is the start of a terrible calvary for her, because in the eyes of the Chinese communists, she's, she's the worst kind of person, because she's a Chinese who's accepted the foreign religion, and so she's submitted to all kinds of um, persecution. She's sent to labor camps. She can't practice her religion. Uh, she can't run her church as before. Her Bible, her religious items are confiscated. Uh, she's sent to work in factories. She's sent to work on farms. Um, she's humiliated, especially in the Cultural Revolution. And there's no way she can contact her family in Hong Kong. There's no way for her to escape. She's also paying the price for being in a part of a foreign church, Anglican church. She was ordained by a foreigner. I mean, this is even worse. So I think it's very hard for us to understand all that she endured during this period. As you say, very courageous of her to stay, although she would have just seen that as her mission. Yeah, I think, well, this, this is the nature of people like that. They are very determined, they're very strong, they have a, a great sense of mission. And yes, they would see this is a, a trial sent to them and that they must endure, and days will improve in the future. So according to the accounts of her life, she did indeed consider taking her own life. She couldn't endure it anymore, but her faith was strong enough to keep her going. So finally, in 1979, uh, after the death of Mao, the end of the Cultural Revolution, the churches are allowed to reopen, and she attends a church in September 1979 in Guangzhou, and there's a thousand people there. So life is able to, to, to come back uh, slowly to normal. And in 1981, uh, she is able to return to Hong Kong for the first time. And many of in her... what? More than, probably about 30 years. Well, since, 90, since 1949. Well, before 49, I mean, she went to Guangxi just after the war. Well, some of her family have emigrated to Canada, so they proposed to her that she move there. So that's what she did. So in 1983, she moves to Toronto. So she spends the rest of her life in Canada. And once she's out of China, then she can have the recognition for what she had been and 1984, she goes to London, she meets the Archbishop of Canterbury, a very warm meeting between them. 1988 is the Lambeth Conference, which is the big, every 10-year meeting of the whole church in the world. And she's uh, welcomed there as the first female minister. And she's, she passed away in February 1992 in Toronto, and she's left her papers to a university there. Reverend Florence Lee would die in 1992 in Toronto. She met Robert Runcie, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in 1984, and so she was fully recognised. She'd been ordained by Bishop Hall in China in 1944. But in terms of, you know, what she was, in fact, the first of, were there other women who then were ordained 
in the Anglican Church that followed her? Well, the, the first two who were ordained were in 1971, and it was also in Hong Kong. Uh, and uh, there was uh, one Caucasian, Joyce Bennett, one Chinese lady, J Jane Huang. And uh, I think last year Joyce Bennett passed away. And I remember reading a long obituary about her life in the Times newspaper in the UK. So those two ladies were also pioneers. How is Florence Lee remembered both in Hong Kong and even on the mainland? Well, no, let's speak first about her. There's a foundation named after her. And <clears throat> this is really remarkable because there's a foundation which is uh, based in the UK. It's run by the son of Bishop Hall, whom we spoke about earlier. And its mission is to help all the Florence Lees around the world. So these are women who want to become ministers but who do not have the money to do the education they need so they raise money and they provide it to these women in order to, to uh, receive the education and enable them to become ministers so they've spent more than half a million pounds and they've helped over 275 women mostly in africa also in fiji brazil and pakistan so I think that is an indication of the inspiration that this lady has provided around the world. And, of course, the people who receive the money know that it's named after her. So they all see themselves as daughters of Reverend Lee. Mark O'Neill on the life of the Reverend Florence Lee, the first woman ordained minister in the Anglican Church. And now for something completely different. We're heading into the year of the chicken. So I shall wish you kung hei fa choi and leave you with a chat I had with Radio 3 Steve James. I headed down to his studio to hear about his five top chicken songs of all time. But first, we had to settle on what we would call it. Desert uh, Island Clocks. <laughs> yes, indeed. So we've called it Foul Play. Oh, OK. With Good. Steve James. That's what we're calling it. Okay, so what are your five chicken songs for the five, year of the rooster? Five chicken <laughs> songs. It's a cop-out, isn't it? Because it's rooster, it's not chicken. Is that, was that your DJ voice? <laughs> uh, at number five, I thought about this very, very carefully, and I had a battle for number five, because I really wanted a song by um, Little Feet called Dixie Chicken to be on it, because it's great, but it's got nothing to do with nothing. Um, so I'm going with The Meters. It's from 1970. The Meters, uh, everyone's forgotten about. They were in the, they were around in the sixties and seventies. They were a backing band for like uh, Dr. John and Robert Palmer and uh, other bands, and they put out loads of stuff themselves. And clearly, in nineteen seventy, this was a time when there were lots of funky chickens around. The funky chicken was well in. Uh, this is Chicken Strut by the Meters. interesting isn't it that, that chickens are often seen in comedy but they're also seen as funky they're they're strutting is that a difference between a rooster and a chicken oh there you go because they're funkier chickens are funkier than roosters intriguing concept anna marie evans um i blame the uh, the following person as a gentleman called uh, rufus thomas who i'm not I, I don't know if i haven't done my research if james brown was in on this but i'm going to say that rufus thomas was in there well early, the funkiest of the funkiest. Anything, if you're at a party and you've got a Rufus Thomas album that, in the mix, 
it's a winner. And there is always, he's, he was around for like the 50s and 60s. And then into the late 60s, and early 70s, he started doing all these, these dances. He did Walking the Dog. You liked a bit of that? He did the, uh, the pu- Do the Push and Pull. And then there was the Funky Chicken. Best line in this song is, <laughs> I feel so unnecessary. <laughs> this is Rufus Thomas doing the Funky Chicken in 1969. Y'all come on in now. Come right on down front. I got something I want to show you. Now y'all heard of the popcorn? Y'all heard of the dog? And you heard about all of them other dances? But now that's a brand new dance that's going around. I want to show you exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the funky chicken. Y'all ready? I say y'all ready. Okay, here we go. You raise the left arm up. And your right arm too. Let me tell you. Just what to do Start moving on the famine Start to feed the kitchen That's when you know You're doing the funky chicken Do they just talk about chickens or do they talk about eggs? The eggs they don't seem to work in at all. In fact, when it comes to the composition of the uh, fantastic world of the chicken song I find very little actual context of anything outside just using the word chicken Funky, do the. It, it goes no further than that. And there's a, there's a wonderful, wonderful example of this isn't a golden oldie or anything like that. They, this sounds like it was recorded in the 60s, but that's their sound. That's what they do. That's their sound. They're called the Bees. It was recorded in 2005. We play this a lot on Radio 3, and it's, uh, it's a great track. And all they do is just say chicken a lot. It's called, <laughs> uh, it's called Chicken Payback, and uh, this is the New Year's morning wake up tune. seen as a farm animal is it seen as a sex symbol (laughs) i'm gonna clip that anna marie and keep that for the rest of my life is the chicken seen as a sex symbol um i think it's uh um, a useful cop-out for uh uh, certain stories things that 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 they want to say in a song like uh, louis jordan i'm not sure and his timpani five I don't know what he's... You could. There was a lot going on in 1946. There's an, an underlying storyline here somewhere. But this was huge. It was a big, big song. The other side of the song, when it came out in um, uh, 78, was a, a track called uh, Let the Good Times Roll. This is a great record. 
And I think it was made extra great by the fact that they worked chickens into it. It's clearly a winning year. Uh, 1946, Louis Jordan and his Timpani 5. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. One night Farmer Brown was taking the air Locked up the barnyard with the greatest of care Down in the hen house something stirred When he shouted, who's there? This is what he heard There ain't nobody here but us chickens There ain't nobody here at all So calm yourself and stop that fuss There ain't nobody here but us We chickens trying to sleep And you butt in And hobble, 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 hobble With your chin There ain't nobody here but us chickens There ain't nobody here at all You're stomping around Four. Yeah, we're down to number one. So are you doing your chickens chronologically? I'm not doing my chickens chronologically. I'm, um, as we say uh, in the radio business, flying by the seat of my pants. <laughs> However... But chickens don't fly. Um, do, do roosters? I don't think this so. This is a losing conversation. <laughs> this is going to go nowhere. Um, there is one, there's one song, only one, one. I knew this was going to come out. And I've been waiting for, uh, well, 12 years, I suppose, I've been waiting for this. And you're going to get very, very tired of this sound by the end of this year because I'm going to go hell to leather for it. Um, this is the Hen House 5 uh, plus 2. Came out in 1977. It's actually Ray Stevens. Now, Ray Stevens has had a huge career. He's music royalty. He's worked and arranged for other artists for years. He's produced hits for himself. A lot of what he releases has been his gospel-influenced stuff, songs about God. And then he comes out with... One about chickens. One about chickens. This is quite possibly the greatest song ever recorded.
not much to add to that. Uh, <laughs> Hong Kong Heritage there, produced and presented by Anna Marie on your station, RTHK Radio 3, the chicken station. Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. In a large crowd, always act in a safe and orderly manner and follow the advice of the police. If overcrowding occurs, don't push, don't shout, stay calm. I'm just coming up to 15 away from our news at uh, 7 o'clock. We continue with our book club. In our reading tonight, Philip Glass recalls his mentors, his inspirations, and the places that helped him to shape his artistic consciousness. After breaking through with Einstein on the beach in 1976, Glass then returned to another 20th century icon, Mahatma Gandhi. Success brought the attention of filmmakers, and his career then developed into a new direction. The reader tonight is Kerry Shale. My opera Satyagraha and the score for Godfrey Reggio's film Koyaanisqatsi were my first works in which social issues became the core subject. Back in 1966, I had arrived in Kalimpong, nestled between Nepal, Bhutan and Sikkim, and made famous by generations of trekkers, climbers and Indian and English officials on their way to and from Tibet. During my morning walks, I began to notice a small rug shop with its owner at the door. Soon we were nodding to each other, then exchanging greetings, and finally one morning, Mr. Sarup asked me if I had a little time for him, that he had something to show me. He led me a few streets away to the local movie house. It was not very big, containing perhaps 100 seats, and showed a film only on the weekends. Mr. Sarup had arranged a special showing for me, which turned out to be a newsreel a short piece in which a small, skinny, older man, dressed in a dhoti, a simple linen covering, walked with a wooden staff toward the ocean. A huge crowd surrounded him. He waded into the ocean and dipped the ends of his dhoti.